If God is for us, is there anything in this world that has the power and the ability to conquer, to overcome or to otherwise destroy you? No, absolutely not. If God is for you, even if everyone else in the world were against you, even if all the demons of hell were assembled at your door, if God is for you, then you and he represent the only majority that matters. More than conquerors. Why? Not because you're strong, but because he is. Now, you and I, how often do we forget this? You know, sometimes we forget that God is on our side. You know what we do? We think that God is just a, he's a referee, but he's not a teammate. He's just a referee. He whistles. He puts up yellow cards and red cards when we transgress. He's just a referee. We see him in that way as a punitive judge, as a critic. Not as a father. If God is for you, who can be against you? Now, the presupposition is that he is for you. And you don't have to wonder that. You don't have to wonder, is God really on my side? Any more than you should wonder if a good and loving father really loves his children. He does. Believe it. Act accordingly. When we think that God is at arm's length, we do him a disservice and we do us a disservice. For being honest, many of us feel that he's perpetually at arm's length. Whether it's by his own volition or ours. And so when we face challenges... We define those challenges and obstacles, we define them as tests. We call them tests, and we think that God is just this dispassionate, punitive critic, and his only interest is to record what we do. If that's the case, if that's how we see God, then it's no wonder that so many of us do feel shackled by our sins. If you think that God is only testing you when, when challenges or temptations arise, it's no wonder you feel weak. It's no wonder that you think that you can't possibly win. Think God is at arm's length, of course you're going to feel inadequate on your own. Is it true? No, no, no. And that is Paul's conclusion in the book of Romans. The lies we buy into are not true. God is not your critic. He is your father and he treats you as such. Paul knew that from his own experiences. Paul had so many times uh, when he was hurting, when he was in jail, when he was shipwrecked, when he was beaten, when he was alone, when he was weak. But he knew, no matter what came up against him, that God was with him. God wasn't just waiting for Paul to mess up. God was with him through the highs and the lows. He was at his side now, Paul knew that from his own experiences, and many of us can test to the same thing. We can look at our own track record, and we can see that so many times our track record on our own has been terrible. And we look and see how many times we were faithless, and yet at the same time, we can look back and see that even as we were faithless, that God was faithful, and that he's still faithful today. Paul experienced that. You and I have experienced that. Now, when Paul felt particularly alone, now, he was a man of flesh and blood, so he had anxieties and doubts. What would a guy like Paul do in those moments that some of us have experienced and some of us might even be going through now? What did Paul do? He went to Scripture. He went to places like, like Psalm 46, 
where he read this. God is our refuge and our strength. God is our refuge and our strength. He is an ever-present help in the midst of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be moved, even though the mountains be, be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. It, you know, if you're like a lot of believers, you believe that God can do all that. The problem is in your own life, you don't think you're worthy of it. You think, I'm such a rotten individual, I don't feel worthy for God to move a mountain on behalf of, of one such as me. It isn't true. Don't buy into any lie that causes a gap or a chasm to exist between you and your God. Too often we do fall into this trap of thinking that, yeah, God has saved me, but he does just sit back and watch me now. He saved me from sin's guilt, but it's, it's still, its power is, is too much for me. Sometimes we have a sensation that God is angry with us and that the freedom that we have that we see in scriptures is a temporary thing and that the chains may return tomorrow well in verses 31 and 32 paul is trying to show us that not only have we been freed from sin but that the god who freed us is even now championing us on you know whatever whatever you face uh, outside these doors whatever you face inside your own heart none of that is any match for the God who loves you and calls you his own. And speaking of his own, Paul says in verse 32 that if God did not spare his own son on our behalf, then what would he not spare to assure that those that he has bought in are cleansed, are sanctified, are encouraged, Again, God is not just a referee in your day-to-day -day life. He is on your team. And more importantly, you are on his. Okay, let's look now at verses 33 and 34. Verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, who is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God and makes intercession for us. Now, in verses 33 and 34, which we've just read, Paul continues to ask questions. Again, he, he's trying to, to, to lay ideas at the door of your mind by asking questions that cause us to think and to answer those questions. And he knows there's only one answer to these questions. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who can condemn one of God's own? Now, these are rhetorical questions that, say, that share the same answer. And the answer is... No one, no one can charge. No one can condemn God's own. No matter what accuser might come against you on that great day, say, you're not worthy of the kingdom of God. Well, you know what? The accusation, if it was just about you, would probably be right. You're not worthy of the kingdom of God, but Christ in you, you clad in Christ's righteousness, that is the means for your hope, for your, your eternal glory. No one can take that from you. You know what? You can't take it from yourself either. Those who are God's own, those who have been regenerated, those whose hearts have been changed, won't slip tomorrow, even though we still sin. But we're not going to slip tomorrow 
into a state where we're no longer God's children and our hearts are once again dead. It doesn't work that way. The doctrine of regeneration doesn't work where your heart is alive one day and dead the next. A heart that's alive, a heart that's been changed, will continue to be changed, will continue to be cleansed. Whatever once sat on the throne of your heart in days past no longer sits there. Why? Because the king has moved in. You are his temple. He will cleanse. He will sanctify. Because that's true, who in the world can condemn you? Who in the world, what spiritual entity can cast you into the flames? No one. Nothing. No how. This is encouraging. This gives us hope. No matter what we're facing tomorrow, this is our future. Glory. Nothing will happen to take that from us. Now, when Paul's asking these questions, you might picture him, when he's asking these kind of rhetorical questions of who could bring a charge against God's elect, who could possibly condemn, you can kind of picture him in a courtroom setting with all of God's elect standing at his side, all of his brethren. And his arms are thrown wide as he argues on behalf of the totality of God's people, saying that the law has no ability to condemn God's people. Now, does that mean that God's people are innocent? This is a Sunday school question we'd open up for discussion. Does it mean that, God, that uh, God's people are innocent? No, that's right. Absolutely not. You see, neither Paul nor any of the gospel authors say that we're innocent. None of them. In fact, the early chapters in the book of Romans all do what? They all establish our guilt. Specifically, the earlier chapters say that all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And this has implications. What is the biggest implication? The wages of sin are death. To the thinking man, that's a problem. However, although we're found guilty, the law has no ability to condemn us. Although we're guilty, although we truly have broken and transgressed and sinned against the commandments of our king, Although we're guilty, the law has no ability to condemn us because somebody else has already been punished for our crimes. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what Paul reminds us in verse 34 when he says this. It is Christ who died. He's saying, you and I, we deserve to die. But. It is Christ who died. And furthermore, he's been raised. And he sits even now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He continues to make intercession for our souls. You know, in a microcosm, that's the gospel message. Although we've sinned, although the wages of our sins are death, that God himself has paid the price that his own justice mandated. And because of this, Paul is again saying there's no charge that can be brought against us. There's no charge that can be brought against us. And furthermore, if there's any sin that we're still ensnared in, it's no sin that Christ can't help us overcome. Now, I imagine, I hope that that good news excited you at one time. 
The question is, does it still excite you? Or is this just gospel 101? Heard that, been there, done that. Now tell me about how God wants to give me prosperity. There's no such thing as gospel 101. The good news probably first excited you that you were saved. Does it still excite you? Does it still make you joyful? Does it still make you happy? Well, it will. It will excite you if you understand that your salvation was not simply a one-time event that happened in your distant past. Notice in verse 34 that Jesus, after dying to purchase our souls, after rising, being resurrected unto life, what does he do now? He sits at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us. He who was so concerned to save you in time past from the condemnation of sin is even now continuing to save you from sin's power and influence in your life. How? By interceding for you with the Father, with the Spirit. Rather than just sitting there at a desk you know, with a ledger, rather than just recording your sins and setting up increasingly difficult tests for you to deal with, as so many of us perceive that God is doing, our Savior is continuing to be our advocate. Our advocate at the throne. And, you know, and what's encouraging here is, is that that advocacy won't stop or go away just because you mess up tomorrow. Guess what? You're going to mess up tomorrow and in the days ahead. But your advocate is faithful even when you are faithless. Nothing can separate you from His love. No host of enemies outside these doors and no darkness that may still linger within. Unwavering love. In fact, that unwavering love is the emphasis of our next verses, verses 35 through 37. Verse 35. Again, this is a, a, a question he's asked is asking that for us to consider it. Verse 35. Who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? As if there's an answer. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation do it? Or distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or peril? Or sword? Or anything else in the created realm? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Sometimes that slaughter looks like a sword. Sometimes it looks like cancer. So understand that Paul is writing an all-encompassing passage here. Yet in all these things, we know that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. You know, one of the misconceptions about Christianity is that sometimes folks think that it, being a Christian will, if, we're, if we do it well enough and we're, if we're faithful enough, that it will insulate us from everything outside these doors, from all the hurts and pains. In other words, sometimes people think the Christian faith, if we pursue it diligently enough, that it will grant us immunity from various tribulations or distresses. Is that the way it works? No. 
And people who confuse that issue, people who, who fail to see that Paul, I mean, the godly of Paul, went through some amazing tribulations and distresses, people who fail to, to, to understand that that can happen to Paul, it can happen to us, uh, people who fail to understand, if people don't have good theology in this matter, people who, do, who, who think that immunity from, from hardships is possible in the here and now, what are they to do when hardships strike? You know, people can have a hard time reconciling God's love with the hurts and pains they continue to feel if they think that God's love will prevent all hurts and pains from ever happening. Now, does our faith insulate us from every possible hurt or pain? In time, it will. That's the good news. Yes, absolutely. And that time's not that far away. There's going to be a time that's going to come, a day with a capital D that's going to come, when absolutely we will be insulated from every harm, every fear, every terror, every tear will be wiped away. It will happen. You can bank on it. And that day has never been closer for you than it is today. It's exciting to think about. And that day will never end. On into eternity, we'll be in that state. Absolutely insulated, bubble wrapped. It will happen. Enfolded in grace. It's coming. Is it today? No. As long as we live in a, in a fallen, hurting world, we are going to be subject to all manner of hardships. For the time being, you and I are foot soldiers. We are foot soldiers, foot soldiers in a place that killed the captain of our salvation. We must never forget that or try to mitigate its reality or implications to us in the present. In fact, verses 35 and 36 address that reality straightforwardly. When they talk about tribulation or distress or persecution, these are real things, even in the life of the believer. But they do not have the power to rip you out of the arms of he who loves you. That's what Paul is saying here. This stuff is real. You carry scars from the hurts that are outside these doors. Those scars are real. More scars may await. But there's no scar so deep that it can ever cut you away from the one who loves you. These tribulations and distresses, here's the good news. These tribulations and distresses are only for a limited season. They're limited in time, and they're also limited in what we would call efficacy. And how effective they are. They're limited in time and efficacy. Now, what do I mean by this? In God's time, every last ounce of pain, of depression, of anguish will be extinguished. In God's time, even now, he's wiping tears away from your eyes. Sometimes he does it through the preaching of the word. But even now, he's wiping away tears. But a day is going to come. Well, he'll wipe away every last one and there will never be a new one. In God's time, this will happen. And even during the limited time that we endure hurts, those hurts can never fully destroy us. They're limited in efficacy. They can never overcome us or conquer us or swallow us. You know, for example, you could argue... That the, what would be the worst tribulation you could ever face? Well, death. How about death? The worst tribulation you could ever face is death. Now, 
Does death, just using that as the far end example, of probably the worst thing that could happen to us, does death have the last word in the life of the believer? No. Absolutely not. Can death ever separate you from the love of God? No. And if death can't do that, if death can't have the last word, if death can't hold you and swallow you and take you down in the grave forevermore, if it can't do that, if it can't do that, if death can't separate you from the love of God, there's nothing else that can. If death is the worst of the worst, and it can't hold you and swallow you and take you away from the arms of, of your God, what else possibly could? These are rhetorical questions. They all have the same answer. And the answer is nothing. No one, no how can do it. Take hope. Be encouraged. Many of us are going through hard things this week. For many of us, that season of hardship probably might not look like it's going to end next week or in the days ahead. But be encouraged. It's limited in time. And it's limited in power. The season is short by which you must go through what you're going through. In all these things, we will be proved. Our faith will be validated. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Not through our own might and power, but through Him who loved us. Okay, let's see how Paul builds on this in our, in our remaining verses, our final verses, verses 38 and 39. Verse 38, for I am persuaded, so Paul is, is speaking here and he's presenting his case, and he says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor, nor height, nor death, nor any created thing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If the seal of God's love for you is his own son's blood. What could possibly exist that could ever break such a seal? Nothing, no one, no how. You have no fears in this regard. There's nothing that can separate us. Nothing that separates us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what Paul is persuaded of. And Paul wasn't just persuaded because someone told him this one time long ago. Paul wasn't persuaded just by words, although in words we have power. But he was also persuaded by the repeated, demonstrated evidence he had of that in his own life, in the days previous. As we look to wind up this morning, let me, let me summarize the, the, the two main presuppositions that we have in today's reading. First of all, Paul said this, You and I, we were once condemned, but we no longer are. Hallelujah. Secondly, Paul declares that if we are no longer condemned, if we are no longer jailed, if the fences have been knocked down, then we should live and act accordingly. Do you? Do you willingly indulge sin? Bend the knee to your former captor. In what way? What corner of your life have you not bent the knee to King Jesus? We are free. We've been liberated. The chains have been uh, loosened, cast off. Do we live as such? There's a pastor 
I admire very much. And he, he frequently uh, takes a he frequently takes a set of keys. He takes a set of keys, and what he does is he'll, he'll jingle them in front of a in front of a microphone for a, you know 30 seconds for a minute. He'll just jingle them endlessly until the time frame when people say, "All right, we got it. Stop it with the keys." Now, after he's got everyone's attention, after he's got everyone's attention, he asks the congregation this. He says, "Did the sound of the jingling keys, did it make you happy?" Did it make you excited? Did it make you joyful to hear that sound? Now, most of the time, the people say, no, it was annoying. I didn't really need that. In response, the pastor asks a question, a rhetorical question. He says this, what if you were incarcerated? What if you were in jail? What if you were in a dungeon, all alone, isolated? And then from out of the blue, what do you hear? You hear the sound of keys. Do you think you'd be excited? Do you think you'd be motivated? Get on your feet. Would some wellspring of joy crop up at the, at the potential of what might happen next? In the same way, you know, some people can hear the gospel and it doesn't make them excited or happy. They hear the jingling of the keys to so the reading of the word. It doesn't do anything for them. Why? Because they don't see themselves as in jail. They don't see themselves as in need of being set free. So many people think they have nothing that they need to be set free from. And because of that, the gospel, the keys, have little value to them. What about you? Now I would submit in closing this morning that the good news of freedom is going to mean more to the individual, much more to the individual who, who appreciates and understands their ongoing need to be freed not only from sin's condemnation, but also from its continuing influence. We all need to hear the gospel keys regularly. You know, all these years after you first believed, the question is, are you still motivated by what you believed in? You know, as believers, if we can't get excited about this, if we can't get excited about the gospel on a regular basis, it may be we don't fully appreciate just what we've been set free from. Now, some of us um, may appreciate it. Some of us may understand it. We've got our arms around the theology of it. But for some of us, we have trouble laying hold of it in the midst of what are just bad circumstances. In other words, some of us have trouble in some areas of our life, even now, coming out of ourselves. Some of us are living still as, as beaten people. And God tells you, you're more than a conqueror. Wherever you're at today, know this. The blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus is not powerless to save, nor is it powerless to sanctify and strengthen those that have been saved. There's no sin that the blood of Christ cannot wash clean. There's no force that can separate us from the one who shed that blood. There's no obstacle in your life, no matter what your circumstance might be. There's no obstacle in your life that the gospel, that the gospel keys are not applicable to and can which not free you from. Let's pray.
This has been a sermon by Pastor Toby Holt of Christ Presbyterian Church in Marietta, Georgia. If you would like to hear other sermons by Pastor Holt, please visit our website at www.christpca.org or you can find us on sermonaudio.com.